0: The rest of you, if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Romans chapter 12. Probably just kind of falls there, huh? Just take your Bible and shake it, it just falls open. We are continuing this morning our look at authentic Christianity as defined by the Apostle Paul in Romans 12. We've been taking a, a long look, item by item, at Paul's description of what a Christian ought to be like. I almost said look like, but I think that um, for anyone to look like this, at least over a length of time, they're going to have to be these things. Uh, Some people can put on a show for a little while, but if you're going to live like this, you're going to have to be this on the inside. And as you look at these qualities listed from verse 9 and following in Romans 12, you may be struck by how far you fall short in a number of these areas. Don't be discouraged by that. Let it spur you on to find out how to become more like this. If you're faltering, just join the club. We're all faltering, right? But then go back to the top of the chapter and see in verses 1 and 2 the necessity of a radical internal change. You need to be born again, of course, to even start this path. But if you're in Christ and have the Spirit of God, then you can. Verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the process, to be transformed, to think differently, to have different affections, to be in God's grace and loving Him in such a way that it transforms the other areas of our life. So by God's grace, change comes as you renew your mind. You align your thinking with God. You agree that His ways are best always. You even become passionate for Him and His commandments. And as we've been looking at these virtues, I have uh, been thinking about how the Bible expects us all to just practice this stuff. You know, there's no excuses made for anybody in this uh, list of things here. Have you ever noticed how Scripture doesn't take into account your own personal idiosyncrasies when it tells you how to be and what to do? It doesn't say, well, you know, you need to do this and do that unless you've got this particular sort of problem in your life, then you don't have to worry about it. It doesn't ever say that. It's expectation of every Christian that they should be cultivating these qualities in life. Holiness of life is not related to your personality at all. You can be sanguine or choleric or melancholy or whatever those weird terms are. And you still need to let love be without hypocrisy. Verse 9. You still need to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Verse 9. There is still a moral obligation, verse 10 of Romans 12, to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Personality may express these virtues in slightly different ways, but they need to be there. The Bible also doesn't take into account your personal history in regard to these obligations. You could have had it very rough, or you could have been spoiled rotten in your life. You could have been a victim or a victimizer, but you still need to give preference to one another in honor. You still should be not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. A renewed mind allows you to be rejoicing in hope persevering in tribulation devoted to prayer those are things that are normal Christianity and nothing about you stands in the way of that except your refusal to renew your mind if you are willing to do it God's way he will transform you struggling? yeah but you will change these are universally applicable descriptions of of the authentic Christian life for every Christian that means me and that means you this is what we are called to So as we continue this morning, bring your life before the mirror of the Word, where you can see and compare. And if you see flaws, begin to make the proper adjustments. You need to fix up certain things and start doing it inside out. Renew your mind. This morning we're going to begin at verse 14. Hopefully we'll make it to verse 16. Uh, Verse 14, Romans 12 says, "Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not." All right, forget that mirror thing. We're not even going to look at that. This is the hard one, isn't it? We're going to go to more depth on this topic in a, couple, a few weeks because Paul picks up this subject again in verse 17. But for now, let's take this simple command and uh, try to get a handle on it. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. I like the way he has to say that sort of a second time just to make sure it kind of filters on through there. Verse 14 takes a big step from verse 13. In verse 13, we were enjoined to love strangers, that Greek word for hospitality we talked about last time. But now we're called upon to bless even our enemies. This is right in line with the teaching of Christ, is it, is it not? Did he not? Did he not say, love your enemies? That's exactly what Paul's saying. Bless and curse not. Those are certainly marks of authentic Christianity because, to tell you the truth, this level of moral behavior is utterly unique to Christianity I don't know any other faith system or religion or philosophy that says to love your enemies except those that have borrowed directly from Christianity the world not only does not think this way it cannot think this way blessings to enemies um, that's just too upside down for people it's too difficult too irrational too much of a denial of the self and that is exactly what the Lord Jesus expects of us to deny ourselves Bless and curse not. You know, this isn't just self-control. It's not just refraining from taking vengeance. It's not even just forgiveness. He's saying that when you are mistreated, even cruelly, we should actively seek the good of that person doing that to us as we pray God's blessings on them. Can you do that? When we looked at verse 9 and we talked about genuine love, we said that love always seeks what is best for the one loved First Thessalonians 5.15 says see that no one repays another evil for evil but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men that's the very definition of love I've been sharing with you don't repay evil for evil but seek the good of another and of all men even those who are wickedly cruel as Christians then we are to seek that very thing for our enemies our persecutors what's best for them that's how we should think now I think considering love in that way really helps us live this out in a balanced yet biblically faithful way take for example uh, the, the criminal or the violent aggressor do I have an obligation to love that enemy that persecutor that vile person yes does love mean we just lie down and take it do we let criminals run roughshod over the rest of us do we overlook crime and corruption all those things no it's not saying that We do what is best in God's eyes, not necessarily what our enemy thinks is best. You know, when you do what's best for someone, it might not be what they think is best. See, a criminal might think, you know it's best for me if you unlock your doors, open your home, let me come in, take your children and sell them into slavery somewhere and uh, take all your possessions. That's not what's best for them, though. See, it's not best for them to be able to do that because that's a blot on their soul, so we're going to prevent them from doing that. That's a loving thing to do. Um, that is not being a doormat for just anybody to do whatever they want so we, we treat them as Christ would our attitude towards them is that they are sinners in need of Christ in need of a savior they need accountability they need to get off the path of wickedness as well so criminals need to be answerable to the justice that there's nothing wrong with that that's not a, a violation of love to make sure they spend their time in the pen they need to get caught and punished we can pray for that as long as it's for their good That should be what what should, what should be in our heart, is that it be their good. This is part of what is good for them. It's not inconsistent to love someone and put an end to their criminality. That's not inconsistent. In fact, in extreme situations, it may even be necessary to kill someone. According to law, not personal revenge, but according to law, a police officer or a person in the military or something might have to do that, or somebody defending their home. And that is not a violation of love either. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 13. Love is not weakness. It's simply viewing all people with the eyes and the heart of Christ. Christ was not weak. His strength was so great that he did not give in to vengeance and hatred. That's how strong he was. It is weakness that gives in to those things. His strength was so great that he saw in his enemies people that God loved and that could be redeemed by love. So, as is always the case with Christian moral instruction, we are not only to refrain from evil, we are to seek to do good to all. John Calvin commented on how hard this is, he said, I have said that this is more difficult than to let go revenge when anyone is injured, for though some restrain their hands and are not led away by the passion of doing harm, they yet wish that some calamity or loss would in some way happen to their enemies. And even when they are so pacified that they wish no evil, there is yet hardly one in a hundred who wishes well to him from whom he has received an injury. Nay, most men daringly burst forth into imprecations, cursings. But God, by his word, not only restrains our hands from doing evil, but also subdues the bitter feelings within. And not only so, but he would have us be solicitous for the well-being of those who unjustly trouble us and seek our destruction. That is not easy, but it is possible. You can get to where people that have profoundly wronged you in your heart, you want what's best for them. Truly. And even act in ways that are what's best for them. You can do that. You see why we need a renewed mind? Because the flesh, our fallen humanness, which focuses on self as the highest good, wants retaliation or revenge. If not personally, then some cosmic forces to strike them down. The darkness in our own hearts wants to see the others suffer, if not by our hand, then by illness or disaster or some sort of calamity. And those are normal feelings. Normal. Now, in psychology, normal is what's okay. But biblically, normal is what is fallen. We are not called by God to act on what is normal for a corrupted race. We are to be above and beyond that. We are to be like him and all we have to do is consider how God loves us. That's all you really have to do to renew your mind is consider how it is that God loves you despite all the ways you've offended him. And then you'll see how foolish you are to withhold grace and kindness to anyone else. Contemplate your own salvation and immediately you recognize that you have no right to withhold love from anybody else. Because the way you've messed up God's world is inexcusable. Right? And He loves you anyway. You have so offended the holiness of God that you deserve nothing but judgment. And yet He loves you anyway. And we should carry that same awareness of His love for us to others. Who are we to say that they are not worthy of forgiveness? Now, we are here to do God's work. And as someone in the church often reminds me, it's not about us. It's not about us. It's about the Lord. That's what we're here for. We're for Him. We're here for Him! Not for our own sakes. Now in verse 15, Paul turns to the subject of Christian sympathy. The word sympathy means to feel with someone, right? To share their emotional state. Verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is simply another aspect of love to identify and even enter into the joys and the sorrows of other people. Now, some people will literally weep at those who weep, tears and all. Other people might be less demonstrative, but we should all have hearts that are tender enough so that we can sympathize with other people and where they are. If you're not a crier, you don't need to fake tears, squeeze them out of your head or anything like that. Well, I'm not fulfilling this verse if I'm not crying. Better spray something in my eyes. Uh, that's not what it's talking about. It does talk, it's talking about a sympathetic heart, a focus on the emotional needs of those around us to relate. Jesus Christ, who is the most, not only the most sinless being that ever existed, but the most balanced personality that ever lived, the most perfectly cohesive human personality, knew how to sympathize. He he wept with Lazarus' sisters at his graveside, did he not? The most common emotion ascribed to Jesus, if you do a study of Jesus' emotions in the Gospel, the most common one ascribed to him is compassion. Compassion. Moved with compassion, it says over and over again. He had compassion on the crowds that flocked, to see Him. Matthew 14.14, He saw the great multitude and He felt compassion for them and He healed their sick. Matthew 15.32, Jesus called His disciples to Him and said, I feel compassion for the multitude because they've remained with Me for three days now and have nothing to eat. Matthew 20.34, Jesus heals two blind men And the text says, Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight. They're sitting by the roadside crying out, Son of David, have mercy! Son of David, have mercy! And he sees them and he doesn't go, Oh, well, I'm the Messiah. I'd better heal those guys. He he felt compassion for their situation. And so he goes over and he heals them. Mark chapter 1, a leper kneels before Jesus and says, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And it says, And moved with compassion... He stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I'm willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was clean. Over and over we see Jesus identify with the suffering and anguish of people. One day he's walking along and a funeral procession is coming down. The widow of of Nain, she has no husband, her only child has died, he's just passing by, he sees funerals every day. In those cultures, you had buried you the day you died. If you died, there was no funeral home or anything. There was just a procession of people that were taking you out there. You would see that all the time going on. And on this particular occasion, being who he is, Jesus knew that this woman was the, uh, a, a totally alone person in life weeping for her only son who was probably her only support in life as well as her only comfort. And he just stops the funeral and raises him from the dead. Moved with compassion for her. You need your son back. You just, you just need him back. Here. Over and over and over. His heart was full of the sorrows of others. And the joys, too. Although in the gospels the emphasis is on suffering and sorrow, as it is in most people's thinking. There are places where Jesus rejoices. Always when spiritual victories are obtained. That's where you see him rejoicing. The most stunning example, you might want to turn to Luke chapter ten real quick, was on the return of the seventy disciples that Jesus sent out to proclaim the kingdom. In Luke 10, 17, it says they returned with joy. Okay, he sends these 70 guys out. He had 12 disciples. He also had 70 disciples who were not as high-ranking as apostles, but other men. Did you all know that? And he sent the 70 out two by two to go into all the towns, proclaim the kingdom. He gave them powers to be able to perform miracles. And they're amazed. They come back and they're, they're, they're excited. They're pumped. They're saying, you know, Jesus, even demons... Leave people when we use your name over them. They're all excited about that. And, and uh, Jesus is excited with them, but he also gives them a warning in verse... Um, I forgot to turn there. Verse 18, he says... Talk about getting excited. Okay, He says to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, wouldn't you love to hear Jesus say that? You come back and you tell Jesus how good it's going. And he says to you, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. Yeah, me too. Did you see that? He says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall injure you. Then he says, really interesting, typical of Jesus, he's rejoicing with them, he says all these wonderful things and he says, But, nevertheless, don't rejoice in this. This is not the thing to be happy about. you not only have power to cast out demons, I am giving you divine power that will protect you utterly from anything. You can walk on snakes and they won't hurt you, but you know what? Don't be happy about that. That's so temporal. Don't get excited about that. Here's what you should be excited about. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Rejoice in your salvation, not in power, he says. Boy, that's a, that's a message the modern church needs to hear. Yeah. The true cause of rejoicing is not spiritual power. It is salvation from sin. And at the thought of their names recorded in heaven, Jesus is filled with joy. And in verse 21, he says, at that very time, He rejoiced greatly. He's happy in the Holy Spirit. And He said, I praise Thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that Thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and didst reveal them to babes. That's what he's excited about. That's what brings joy to him. So he's rejoicing with them. He corrects them, aims their joy a little more accurately. But he's happy, and he's happy that they're knowing and understanding who he is and what it's all about and what salvation is. Joy in God's saving mercy. Compassion for those suffering and sorrowful. That is Christ-likeness. Now, that's a good way to take your spiritual temperature to see how you're doing, if you're like that. Do I have genuine joy over the blessings that God grants my brothers and sisters? When they are sorrowing, do I grieve with them? We need to get enough outside of ourselves to embrace the good and the bad experiences of other people. That's how we do God's work. That's how we minister to other people. Now, of course, we often think of someone who is not like this as simply being sort of detached or self-focused and not very interested. And we say, you know, we've got to be a little more interested. You know, That might be true, but there's another whole dimension to this, uh, opposed to this, because human beings are so wicked that in reality, evil motives often creep in. It's not just that we don't do it. It's that there's actually an antithetical quality built into us from our own sinful natures. The opposite of rejoicing with someone is what? It's not just not rejoicing, it's wanting to see them fall, wanting to take it down a notch or two. Oh, they got to be they got that position. Well, let's see how they handle it. That kind of thing, see. An actual resentment of another person's happiness, that is more common in the dark recesses of the heart than we probably are willing to admit. And rather than weep with those who are suffering, sometimes wicked hearts find cause to gloat and actually find joy in another person's suffering. Book of Proverbs, it says, He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. It is the assumption and the command of Christian moral teaching that we will strive to have the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ in all of these matters be neither detached nor cruel, but... Holy, sympathizing with the sorrows and the joys of others. Verse 16, Romans 12, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, proud, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Be of the same mind. That's Paul's way of calling us to unity. The way we achieve being of one mind is to be singularly devoted to Christ and the cause of the gospel. When we all prioritize the same thing, we're going to be a lot more single-minded than if we're not. If I'm prioritizing football and you're prioritizing Christ, then we've got two different... There's disunity there already because the most important thing is football. Whereas you think the most important thing is Christ. See, that, That's not going to work. We have to have the same priority. There is a wonderful unity possible when the Lord comes first. We've seen that over and over again in our church experience here. But human failings can certainly complicate that unity or or even destroy it. Self-exaltation, pride, feelings of superiority, those are things that tear people apart. They just tear people apart. So Paul says, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. It is really hard to be proud if you're friends with the poor and the weak and the unpopular. Because the world won't let you be proud. They'll put you down with those people. So to be associating with the lowly genuinely is a good step towards humility. One of the key aspects of being on the inside or being in the cool group or the crowd is to disassociate yourself from certain unworthy beings who are not cool or whatever. I mean, this is so dominant in schools, but people leave schools and they live that in their lives as well and they grow up. The inner ring. C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful essay called The Inner Ring about that whole temptation and desire to be on the inside with the crowd, the inside crowd. And to do that, you automatically have to exclude with arrogance other people. So to be part of the in crowd requires that the lowly people get snubbed. And if that's true, then to be on the inside crowd is a sin. If you can't be both, if you can't be on the outside where Christ would be and on the inside, if you can't be both, it's a sin to be on the inside. Parents, you have a moral obligation as a Christian to teach your children this in their school relationships and their friendships. You can be cool only to the point where you look down on others. And the day you step over that line, cool has to go. Then you're in sin. If you're a young person, don't envy those who live by the cruel exclusion of other people. Don't do that. If you do that, repent. Because your school needs Christ-like people, not more self-absorbed, competitive fools. There's plenty of those people around. Plenty! And I seriously doubt that one can stay with the in-crowd and associate in kindness with the lowly. If it can be done, so much the better. Then you can model the love of God to both groups, those in and those out. But if you can't do both, you can't be on the inside. Of course, you can be on the outside and be jealous of the popularity and be haughty and proud in your own way and find your own niche and group to look down on these other people, the shallow fools. (laughs) Pride is not limited to those on the inside. The spiritual person knows that all that stuff is just not what life is about at all. None of it. God's people live to serve God, not their own egos. That's the whole point. So whether you're on the inside ego thing or you're on the outside, well, I'll just be a rebel on the outside and have my own thing. That's, that's the same stuff. That's all got to go. Jesus simply didn't worry about his reputation based on who he spent time with, one way or the other. And he, he's the kind of guy who could be on the inside and the outside. He could go to a Pharisee's house and sit down to dinner and talk with him, like in the story we read earlier in the service today. And he can be out there with the sinners and the tax gatherers. If the inside group didn't like it, tough. If they didn't want to invite him over anymore, fine. But if they did, he's willing to go because they need the Lord just as much as these people. He would share a meal one day with a wealthy Pharisee, the next day with a peasant, the next day with an absolute social outcast. Do you remember what they said about him? A friend of tax gatherers and sinners. And that was an insult. See, we might think that's a compliment from a Christian point of view. That was an insult. He's a glutton and a drunkard, they said, because he spends time with gluttons and drunkards. But people who live to share God's love don't worry about labels and they don't worry about accusations. Not if what they're doing is for the Lord. Now, that's not an excuse to go hang out with drunkards and gluttons and become a drunkard and a glutton. That's not what we're talking about. What did Jesus say? A doctor doesn't go where the well people are. He goes where the sick people are. That was his attitude. People who live to share God's love just don't worry about all that stuff. Now, naturally, today, there aren't very many people to accuse you of hanging out with sinners. I mean, the in crowd is usually the ones delighting in sin themselves. In the first century Jewish thing, you had a hypocritical, phony, but pious, externally pious, that was the inside crowd. You don't have that today. Today the inside crowd is openly wicked. So it's different. It's more like it would be in the Roman part of the ancient world, not the Jewish part of the ancient world. Today it's a friend of the uh, unfashionable that would be the outside person. Right? Person who doesn't wear the right clothes. How could you be seen with someone who dresses like that? Oh my goodness! Or the slow person, or the unattractive person. Don't you think so-and-so is the right sort of person to be seen with? I don't, I, don't, I don't. Or simply those who don't conform. You know, they're not really one of us. I don't think you should be hanging around. That kind of thing, right? You don't see much false piety in a culture which does not value piety. So that's not really as big an issue today. Although my children tell me that that can go on in a Christian school setting where false piety can be part of a being on the inside, you know. But wherever you go, you will find the dreaded inner ring, in some form or another. But you must be bigger than the ring. You have to be. And the only way to know if you're bigger than, the, than that ring, that exclusive inner ring, is to associate with people, genuinely associate with them who don't belong to it, and then see what happens to you. If fear keeps you from associating with the lowly, then you're in sin. If love keeps your horizons open and has an inclusive outlook on all sorts of different people who are all made in God's image and who are as worthy as you of kindness and respect, then you're doing the right thing. You know, y'all you know how the game of exclusion is played because you've all lived your life, right? I mean, you've all seen it, if not participated in it at some point in your life. But we're not to be playing that game as a Christian at all all that matters is that you stand above it and show by your life the way out of it no matter what the consequences are part of having a renewed mind is wanting different things than what the world wants they need to be on that inner ring but you don't I suppose without Christ being part of the inner ring can be a very important thing for some people but in Christ hey we're children of God There's nothing that can compare with that in any earthly terms, right? Who cares about being in an inner ring when you're a child of God? I mean, what are you missing? Jesus Christ is my identity. He's my connection. He's my eternally satisfying inside connection. And with Him, there's enough room for all to be in the ring. There is with Him no pleasure in exclusion. Because exclusion is a sad reality, not a source of pride for those who are in. There are people that are excluded from the the ring of God's blessing, but that's a sad thing. And it's something we don't want to see. And it's something we try to pull them back in from. All are welcome. And we, being on the inside, can invite others in happily with rejoicing because we want to see them blessed. The world seeks exclusive pleasures in order to feel Superior. The Christian seeks the same eternal joys for everyone. We call it evangelism, right? Sharing the good news. You know what the good news is? God has this inner ring and we're all invited. Never let fear of other people keep you from showing God's love to others, especially those on the outside of the in crowd. You know, the number of times tax gatherers are mentioned in the New Testament really fascinates me. It's just, it's like... It's kind of an important group. I don't know how many tax gatherers there were in Israel, but I guess it's important, especially because Jesus picked one to be one of his disciples. Now, there was nobody as excluded as a tax collector. He said, what's so big a deal about a tax collector? It's not our situation. It's not a guy that works for the IRS. This was an oppressed people, a conquered people. Romans ruled. Taxes went to Rome. Taxes fed idolatry and wickedness and oppression, and a lack of freedom. And tax collectors were Jews working for the Romans. Lackeys. Traitors. Dogs. The lowest of the low. Roman lackeys profiteering on their own people. So they were totally shunned by proper Jews. And Jesus loved them. Not what they did, but He loved them. He spent time with them. He ate in their homes. And if people objected, that was their problem. A doctor doesn't go to the well people. He goes to the sick. So you live for God. You don't live for other people. Certainly not for your own ego satisfaction. Next week we'll look more at the end of verse 16 uh, because that deserves a message in itself. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the powerful truth of Scripture. Lord, what a freeing thing it is to be liberated by the gospel from the world's ways and means and all the fears and the controlling realities of life that just consume people. We don't even have to worry about that. All we have to do is be authentic to what you call us to be. What a privilege that is. No greater honor. Father, we thank you. We give you great blessing and we appreciate so much what you've done for us to break the cycle of sin and to show us a better way in jesus name we pray Amen.